Hello and welcome to episode 127 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And we both hope that those of you who celebrate Christmas had a wonderful Christmas. Yes, I hope you had a great Christmas. Oh, and going on into the new year. It's weird because we're pre-recording this. So it's just weird to think that we're going to be there soon. It happens so fast. (laughs) (laughs) It happens so fast. Uh, Yeah, on the 26th when this comes out, I'll be heading to your house actually (laughs) for our family Christmas. So So we're going to be having so much fun on the day that this comes out. (laughs) Fortune telling. (laughs) (laughs) It's a time capsule. Weird. Weird. Can you believe it's going to be 2023? I can because I've been writing that on all my dated things. Oh. Pregnancy brain. It's a thing. <laughs> it's everything. A- everything I date. I'm like, December 7th, 2023. And I'm like, wait, really? No, not. Yeah. I have been doing that for the last like three months. I have no idea why. Why? I why? guess it's going to be a great year. I guess you're so excited to get into it. You're already into it. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you? I'm good. You know, we have been sick clear of the sick here in the house. Those with kids and toddlers know what I'm talking about, though. Like, it's hard to even get children's, they don't have children's uh, Tylenol anywhere right now. Oh. Children's Motrin. Like, you can't find it. And it's because there's so much just sick going around. It's, It's horrible. Oh, no. Well, I'll keep an eye out for you. We've been in the clear now for, I don't know, I'm going to say three or four days. We've been in the total clear. (laughs) (laughs) But I hope we can just stay healthy for Christmas. Just we're going to be seeing so many people and I just want to make sure that everybody is healthy for the holiday (laughs) because we have such an extended holiday. We go and visit my dad and then we spend Christmas with us and then we see some of Alex's family on Christmas and then the day after Christmas I spend it with my mom's side of the family and then the day then a couple days after that we spend it with all of Alex's family so it's just like a lot of people (laughs) and a lot of celebrating Mm -hmm. so I really just want to make sure that everybody is healthy because it's hard it is so hard to be a mom and be sick I mean I'm sure it's hard to be a dad and be sick I'm not I guess it's hard to be a parent and be sick. It is so hard. Like, especially the primary caretaker. It is so difficult because, like, you, you can't. You can't cry about yourself. And I'm such a big baby when I'm sick. Someone's going to take care of me. Well, sweetheart. But I'm the one that takes care of everybody else. <laughs> this too shall pass. And then you can spend Christmases by yourself like we are. <laughs> That is so sad. With only a dog and a cat. I'm sorry. But we see the day after Christmas. So yep. it's not like. No, it's, 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 you know what? It's just the circle of life. It's just the way it goes. Mm. So, so I'm happy that my children all have a significant other and they're spending time with them. So, and their families. I've had, I've had a lot of people kind of point that out to me of like, like when we were all decorating for Christmas, my one girlfriend her children are all significantly older than mine. I think her youngest is 18. I guess it's 17, 19, and 20. And we were decorating for Christmas and she said, this has been a really emotional year decorating for Christmas because none of my kids are helping me this year. 
Uh-huh. And she's like, it's just the cycle of, of what it is. She's like, but soak in every second. Because every Tupperware I opened, the boys were just like, <gasps> just magical. And she's like, soak it in. Yep. Soak it in. Because it happens so fast. It does. It Ugh. it really does. But meanwhile, Obi is getting spoiled rotten. So, you know, what the heck? <laughs> I know. Obi and then my dogs got an advent calendar from Costco. Oh my gosh, Obi loves that thing. Every morning oh after he pees, that's where he goes. The advent calendar, which is under the tree. <laughs> the boys can't even open their advent calendars without the dogs like on top of the boys like, okay, 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 get your toy and then get mine. <laughs> and then Blake just runs around the house with whatever toy he gets and he doesn't care about the toys. She just wants the cookies. <laughs> oh my gosh. I didn't think Obi cared about the toys either, but that little elf thing or whatever it was. Yeah, it was like a reindeer they got that today, reindeer. wasn't it? No, that was a few days ago. Or he was, I think it was oh yesterday. my gosh, he loved it. He started playing with it right away, throwing it up in the air and catching yep. it and throwing it up in the air. And I was like, since when do you like toys that much? That's exactly what Blake did. He's rolling on top of it. Its antlers are gone and its arms are gone already. So oh, ours it's is been in loved perfect on. condition. <laughs> It's just laying in the living room now. Blake loves hard. That's what he does. He, <laughs> he licked that thing to shreds. Oh, Blakey. He's got only six teeth left, so. <laughs> He's gnawing on that thing. Oh, and Annie's like, ugh, a toy. Where are the Where cookies? Where are the cookies? Where are the she cookies? She just looks at me. She just looks at me like, ugh, that is so annoying. Well, Obi loves his cookies, too, that's for sure. Like, oh, you got little Santa Clauses and Christmas stars today. <laughs> He's just looking at me. Just open the dang bag. <laughs> uh, yeah, what did you do with those Christmas stars? There's like a ton of them. What do you pour them? Oh, those food? little ones? Yeah. I, I mean, listeners, these are teeny tiny, like it a little looks bigger like than catnip. that. <laughs> The cat, my catnip is bigger than that. Alex is like, did we get the dog box? I go, no, we got the cat box that had a ball and reindeer <laughs> chew toy. <laughs> no, I got the dog one. It looks like catnip. I sprinkled it over his food. Yeah, that's what I think I'm going to do. Anyway. Okay. okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> this is a true crime podcast. <laughs> Yeah, not a Bettina and Beth show. That's what Patreon is for. I've got the true crime. Bethy, you have the paranormal and the cocktail. What do you have for us? I have been craving. You guys are going on this pregnancy craving journey with me. Lemonade and limeade like crazy. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. So I found this. It's a sparkling mint limeade. Ooh. It has nothing to do with my story, but it came from... <laughs> but I have a craving right now, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, it is the Beth show. No, um, it, it came from iowagirleats.com. Okay. So it's so Iowa it's from relevant. Iowa. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so the ingredients are three-fourths cup lime juice, which is about five to six limes. And this makes four drinks. Not okay. just one. Um, and then you can make some extra slices for garnish. Then it asks for half a cup plus two tablespoons of sugar. Wow. Okay. Then a fourth cup of packed fresh mint mm. plus extra for garnish. 
<laughs> Not and happening. Then, okay. <laughs> and then two and a half cups of club soda. Okay. Not seltzer, but club soda. Gotcha. And then add the vodka if you want some vodka. So her directions on her website say to combine the lime juice, sugar, and mint in a two cup or larger measuring cup and stir until the sugar is dissolved, muddling the mint in the process. Then you refrigerate until chilled. It says the longer you refrigerate, the more mint flavor you will taste in the final drink. Oh, all right. Pour the lime mint mixture through a fine mesh strainer into a pitcher, then slowly pour in club soda and your vodka, if you want vodka, and stir gently. And then you can pour these in it. Again, it makes four drinks. Four drinks. You know, rum would also be very good in that. Rum would be good, yes. Rum would be good. Just saying, because it kind of sounds like a mojito. Sounds delish. All right, Mom. So that is the cocktail. What is our true crime this week? You're like super excited to share this story. I am. I am. She's had it on her list for a long time. I don't know what it is. I just know she's had Iowa on her list for a long time. Okay. Um, Now, some words may slip out that (laughs) I'm just like really intense about this story. And you'll know why. Because down the road, you'll be mad, too. I'm just saying. Great. Yeah. We need that drink. (laughs) Are you ready to learn about a woman who, to me, is evil personified? Meet Tracy Richter, born 1966 in Chicago, Illinois, into a middle-class family. Her father was a Chicago detective. Several resources stating that he was a dirty cop but I found no proof of that. She was a good student, very smart, with high test scores. The future was really wide open to her. She could make anything of herself. After graduation, she attended the University of Northwestern Chicago, where she studied radiology on a scholarship. Uh, May I add here, too, that she was and still is beautiful. I mean, just a very beautiful woman. And she studied radiology? Uh-huh. What is that? Uh, x-rays and stuff. Oh. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it was at the university that she met and started dating John Pittman III, who was a fourth-year med student studying to become a plastic surgeon. John was absolutely smitten with Tracy. Not only was she very intelligent, but also extremely beautiful. They also shared a variety of common interests. They liked the same music, the same movies, the same activities, and mostly John. He was an animal lover, especially dogs. And according to Tracy, so was she. I love dogs. I love animals. Let's have a lot. They had their, they got their dogs advent calendars. (laughs) I don't think so. John would later find out that this was all a lie to entrap him. So um, I can tell you the story about the dogs and the cats later if you want to hear it. Oh, is it dark? Oh, yeah. Then I don't want to hear it. Okay. John wanted Tracy to meet his parents, Dr. John and Una Pittman. John Sr., who was also a, a surgeon and a pioneer of open heart surgery. So his father was well established also in the medical field. Yuna noticed that there was something mm, not quite right with Tracy as soon as she met her. 
While John and his father were watching football and the two ladies were talking at the kitchen table, the two had just met and Tracy started talking about how she had been abused growing up and how bad her childhood was. John's mother thought this behavior to be odd. I mean, they didn't even know each other. They had just like half an hour ago met. Some people, though, just like to talk, though. Like, yeah. I've met people just in the Starbucks line that end up telling me about a fight they got on with their husband the night before. Like, some people just like to talk. Yeah, and you and I have the, quote, gift of asking the right questions so people just continue sharing their life secrets. <laughs> oh, we just, for some reason, cash register. Just... <laughs> it's like, I almost feel like I have to go through self self-checkout because... I end up talking to the cashier. I mean, everybody always wants to tell me their life story. I don't, I don't hate it, but sometimes I'm like, okay, I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, you got that from me. Yeah, but, you know, had she known Tracy better, she would have known that this was her modus operandi. Tracy loved to play the victim and thrived on attention. Two years later, when John was in his first year of medical residency, the couple moved to Denver, Colorado, and were married. John was on his way to becoming a surgeon, and Tracy worked in a lab. The couple's son, Bert, was born in 1990, and it wasn't long after his birth that the marriage turned south. Tensions between Tracy and her in-laws had always existed, but only just got worse when his parents suspected Tracy of putting $15,000 of charges on his father's credit card, on John's father's credit card. John defended his wife, so much so that because of her manipulation, he did not speak to his parents, who he'd always oh. had a good relationship with for two years. No communication at all with them. Was there like a falling out, like a certain thing that happened? Uh, I think the money, that $15,000, was basically the top of the iceberg, so to speak. Now, the she tip was never. The the iceberg? <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> you said top, it's the same thing. Um, it was, she was never charged with this, but it, you know, the parents suspected her of doing it. There was no proof, but they suspected her. And that's why they stopped talking? Yeah, but that was just, as I said, the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yes, John had defended her, but he was starting to notice some strange behavior from his wife. For example, she kept changing Bert's daycare providers, like weekly. Tracy would complain that Bert's diapers weren't being changed, that he wasn't gaining weight like he should. So obviously, he wasn't being fed on a schedule or maybe... There were skipped feedings. There would also be bruises on the baby. John began to suspect that it wasn't the daycare providers that were doing this to his son. It was Tracy. Mm, that's terrifying. That's terrifying to think. Yeah. She was not a, quote, natural mother. In fact, mothering seemed to come very hard to her. John, on the other hand, loved being a father. And when he wasn't working, would spend the time he had with Bert. Now, he was working a lot, many, mm. many, many hours a week. Yeah, he was a surgeon. Mm -hmm. Plastic surgeon, right. Yeah. The couple's relationship deteriorated. The fights escalated, mostly due to Tracy's instigating them. One evening, Tracy became argumentative over where John had dropped his shoes. Her anger rose to the point where she left the room and returned with a gun 
pointing it at John, threatening to kill him and telling him, quote, he'd never leave the house alive. Then she actually shot the gun, missing John. When the police arrived, Tracy was very composed and told them it was a suicide attempt on her part. Okay. She was arrested and was given a court order for therapy, which she attended for the mandated six months. During this time, Tracy seemed to be getting better. The arguments had all but stopped and the family was getting back on track. But boom, right after the six months, Tracy was back to her belligerent and aggressive self. Not only did the fight start up again, but now John suspected Tracy of having an affair. So he hired a private detective. I'm sorry, but if you have to hire a private detective on your spouse, there's obviously no trust there. Just leave your spouse. Yeah, that's what the PI Molly said. When people come up to her to say, I think my husband or whatever is having an affair. She says, man, spend your money on a lawyer because you obviously are, yeah, are already like, thinking he's, you know, don't waste your money on me. If having an affair or not having an affair, like you're already, you obviously don't have trust there. There's obviously something going on, like either pay for a therapist or a divorce lawyer. Cause well, maybe he wanted substantial evidence. I don't know. But in this case, it saved his life. What the PI discovered was a bit startling. Tracy was indeed having affairs. In fact, she would go out two to three times a week meeting up with different men, some older than her, some younger. And she was seen going into a motel room with two or three men. Gross. <laughs> At one point, after the men had rendezvoused with Tracy, <laughs> the PI followed them into a bar where he overheard them talking about a large amount of money that would come their way. Hold on. I just have to clarify something. Mm -hmm. The PI that mom mentioned before, Molly, that was in a Patreon episode. Oh, uh, yeah. That was on a Patreon episode that mom interviewed a PI. This is not the PI that worked this case. No, no, Just no, no. Just to clarify. That's right. That I'd forgotten that confused. it was on Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. Interview with Molly was so much fun. We got a lot of information from that, too. We did. We definitely did. Following other clues, the PI reported back to John that John had to get out of town right away. His life was in danger. Ooh. Now, from what I could piece together, the couple were living in separate households at the time, but still married. Two nights after the PI told John to get the heck out of Dodge, which he didn't, John got a call from Tracy asking him to come over. She wanted to talk to him and maybe even share some wine. No, red flag. <laughs> John had no intention of meeting up with Tracy. Giant red flag. Like, it's waving over the Empire State Building red flag. <laughs> Hello, darling. <laughs> John left his apartment and was randomly driving when he spotted Tracy's car, with her driving away from her place of residence. Shortly thereafter, he got a call from her asking him, where was he? That she was patiently waiting for him. In actuality, she had hired those three men that the PI had overheard talking at the bar. She had hired those three men and they were waiting at her place of residence to ambush John and kill him. Oh, okay. This was, of course, the last straw for John and he filed for divorce, which pissed Tracy off. <laughs> now, this is exactly what John had tried to avoid, but he knew he could no longer do so. 
During the divorce proceedings, the couple had shared custody of Bert, but Tracy would come up with excuse after excuse why Bert could not spend time with his father. I don't like people like that. Well, I think Tracy, I don't know. She, you know how, I don't know, some parents when they divorce, they use their kids as ammunition. Collateral, yeah. I think that was Tracy. I don't know for sure, but that's just my personal thought. She would like schedule, you know, oh, he's going to a birthday party. Oh, he's got practice. She's keeping him from the father by all these schedule conflicts, which is so not right. I mean, John loves Bert. She even went so far as to allege to the court that John had sexually abused Bert. Okay. After several reports from doctors who had examined Bert and found no signs of sexual abuse, the judge ruled against the allegation, stating no evidence. The divorce was finalized in 1996, but the custody battle continued. That same year, Tracy started dating Michael Roberts, who she had met online. So they had been talking online for quite a while, including when she was married. But he lived in Australia. So she flew to meet him in person. And this is obviously after her divorce, but 18 days after she met him in person, they married. Oh, true love. (laughs) They moved to early which is a very small town in Iowa, population about 500. (laughs) Oh. Michael thought this would be for only a very short time, and then they would move back to Australia. It was only a few months into their marriage that Michael found out Tracy was, once again, having affairs. But he was dead set on making the marriage work and not, quote, becoming another statistic. Michael and Tracy went into business together. They sold information technology training courses. Because when you don't trust your wife, you want to partner with her in business as well. Well, you know, he, <laughs> he just wanted to make this work. And I don't know. Michael was known to be an entrepreneur, having started several other businesses in Australia. And he was quite successful at it. The couple had two children. Noah in 1998 and a baby girl, Mason, in 2000. Meanwhile, John, so Tracy's first husband, sought sole custody of Bert because he feared for his son growing up in an unstable environment. He knew his ex-wife's erratic behavior, and he was afraid of how this would affect Bert. Unfortunately, the attempt for full custody started a terrible chain of events. I can imagine she didn't react very well. While living in early... Michael and Tracy befriended Dustin Weedy. Dustin lived across the street from the Roberts until Michael and Tracy moved into one of the nicest houses in Early in another neighborhood of the town. Dustin lived with his parents, Brett and Mona, and his sisters, Ashley and Brianna. Dustin was shy and had very few friends. He was the special ed kid that was bullied and made fun of in school, never being invited to birthday parties or play dates. He was quiet around strangers, but friendly and helpful around the people he knew. He was described as very smart and loved computers, golf, and video games. Dustin and his father, Brett, were very close and spent a lot of time together playing golf or tinkering around in Brett's workshop. Dustin's mother, Mona, was a realtor who sold the Roberts their first and then second house in early. 
having spent some time with them, Mona liked Michael. He was smart and had an easygoing attitude. So when he offered to act as a sort of mentor to Dustin, she wholeheartedly agreed. The couple took Dustin under their wing. He attended church with them, mowed their lawn. Michael played paintball and worked on computers with Dustin. It was a very workable and congenial relationship until it wasn't. Keep in mind, John was pushing for full custody of Bert. Okay, keep that in the back of your mind. It was December 2001. Michael was out of state at a business meeting. Tracy called Dustin asking for his help in making copies for her and Michael's company. Always willing to help the Roberts out, Dustin agreed. December 13th, dispatch got a 911 call from the 11-year-old Bert, stating that two intruders had come into the house. They had tied his mom up, then one of the men ran out of the house. Police and EMS arrived at the house. They found a man in the master bedroom, face down in a pool of blood. The dead man had been shot nine times, three of which had been to the back of his head while he was lying face down. Hmm. The dead man was 20-year-old Dustin Weedy, the shooter, Tracy Roberts. (sighs) Tracy told investigators she had been giving her baby daughter a bath when she heard the front door opening and thought it was Michael coming home from his trip. But when she looked down into the foyer, she saw two men who were turning to head upstairs. She quickly gave the baby to her son, Bert, who was in his room with her three-year-old son, Noah. She closed the door but was pulled backward by her ponytail before she could do anything else. One of the men pulled a pair of pantyhose that were on the banister and used them to strangle Tracy. She passed out. When she came to, she was able to kick the men and run to the bedroom where they kept two guns in a safe. Tracy said that as soon as the guns were in her hand, she started shooting. Yep, both of the guns. She said she didn't know how many shots she fired. She was sitting on the floor of the bedroom, up against the wall, and shooting into the hall. She knew she had shot one of the men because of the blood, but he wasn't down, and he kept moving towards her. She shot him until he no longer moved. Tracy did have ligature marks around her neck, and a pair of pantyhose was found in the kitchen. So now you have the picture. But what about the pink notebook? This notebook proved to be a vital piece of evidence. It was found on the front seat of Dustin's car. It seemed to be a journal, and in it was an outline of a murder-for-hire plot to kill Tracy. And according to the journal, the man who hired Dustin to kill Tracy was Dr. John Pittman, Tracy's ex and custody rival. Police never revealed the existence of the notebook to the public or to any family members. That's important to remember. The notebook was sealed evidence. Even to Tracy? Even to Tracy. They kept this from everybody. Okay. What about Dustin's poor family? We can't forget about them because they were victims in all of this also. The night of the shooting, Brett had come home looking for Dustin, who was not home. Brett told Mona that he thought he'd seen Dustin's car parked in the Roberts driveway. They raced to the Roberts house which at this time had been taped off, with police and medical personnel running every which way. Mona asked whether Dustin was in the house. A policeman answered, yes. Is he dead? asked Mona. The answer, yes. The Weedy family would never be the same. 
Dustin's parents separated. The strain of his death was just too much for the marriage. Brett started drinking a lot, but the alcohol could not deaden the depression and hole in his heart that losing Dustin had caused. The Thanksgiving after Dustin's death, Brett visited Dustin's gravesite, kneeling and wrapping his arm around the headstone. Brett took out a gun and shot himself in the heart. Mona was not only dealing with the loss of the two men she loved, but she also had a hell of a lot of questions. There was no way her shy, sweet son had broken into the Roberts' home. He had no history of violence. But at the time, the Weedy family seemed to be the only ones with questions about Dustin's death. Tracy was hailed a hero. She had saved her children and herself from certain death. Dustin was called a burglar and a murderer. The case became a media sensation, even more so after Tracy went on the Montel Williams show, which was a talk show that was popular in 91 to uh, 2009, sort of like Oprah Winfrey. I know Montel Williams. I okay. <laughs> to tell the nation her story, with Michael sitting right beside her, supporting her. She was the hero mom. Case closed. Or it was until 2010, when a new prosecutor, Benjamin Smith, started looking into the case. Things just didn't add up. Some of them very obvious, which leaves one questioning the original investigation and prosecutor. Things like, if Dustin and another man, who had, by the way, never been found, were at the <laughs> Roberts' were at the Roberts house to break in and burglarize it, why did they park right in the driveway? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. I was actually just wondering that too. The mom said that they saw their car there. Well, that's yeah. weird. Dustin had supposedly been at the house earlier that day. He stopped by to look for Michael. So he knew that Tracy was home. So why are you going to burglarize a house that you know the woman and the children are at home? Yeah, that okay? doesn't make sense. If Dustin was there to kill Tracy, as the pages in the pink notebook stated, then why was no weapon brought into the house? Yeah. There was absolutely no evidence that John Pittman and Dustin knew each other or had ever talked or communicated with each other. And on that note, why would John ask Dustin, a 20-year-old computer geek, to kill Tracy? <laughs> makes no sense. None, none of it makes sense. If I remember right, she's the only one in this story that's hired somebody to kill somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Why was Dustin shot nine times? His wounds also told a different story from Tracy's. At least three of the shots, the ones to his head, showed that Dustin was on the ground when shot, not up and walking towards her as Tracy had stated. That poor guy. There were some other things, like the safe was in the space it was against the wall, but it was in the space between the bed and the wall, which was super tight, really, really tight. And it was improbable. I mean, every, anything is possible, but it was very improbable that Tracy could have grabbed the guns, turned around in that space and shot the guns actually striking someone in that tight, tight space. That's another thing. As somebody's chasing her, though, too. Like, as there's, like, a time crunch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, supposedly, let's put this together. <laughs> she has been strangled with her own pantyhose. Then she woke up and she kicked the men, both men, away from her. 
giving herself enough time to run to the bedroom to the safe. Okay, here's another inconsistency. Some stories say that, yes, she was strangled, but after she passed out, they tied her hands with the pantyhose. Other stories that she has told said no, she was just strangled. So if the story of the pantyhose around her wrists were true, how the hell did she get the guns out of the safe in time to shoot the two men who were not hurt? And so, you know, they were running after her. Well, none of it makes sense because if she passed out, then if they were really there to steal something, then they would have stolen it and left. Why were they just... they do like, oh, she's passed out. Let's just sit here and eat a bowl of popcorn and wait for her to wake (laughs) up. Let's just look at her. She's so beautiful. It just doesn't make sense. Several witnesses were called back in and interviewed by Smith. It was at this point that things fell into place for the prosecutor. In his interview with Tracy's friend, Mary Higgins... Smith mentioned that they had new evidence. Mary blurted out, quote, you mean that stupid notebook? <gasps> End of quote. How did Mary know about the notebook? There was a piece of evidence that was never released to the public or to any family members. But Mary said that Tracy had told her about the notebook and had even said that because of what Dustin had written in it, John Pittman would be arrested. Remember again, John and Tracy were in the middle of a huge custody battle, and if Tracy lost, she would lose custody of Bert as well as $1,000 a month she was receiving for child support. (sighs) Smith put the story together as the evidence showed it happened. Tracy had lured Dustin to the house by her request for help with the copies. Then somehow she was able to get Dustin to write in the pink notebook about John Pittman hiring him. Now, it was proven to be Dustin's handwriting in the notebook. But here's the catch. Dustin, who had special needs, hated to write. He would never keep or write a journal, his mother said. There was no way. An excerpt from the page read, quote, JP, so John Pittman, wants me to get slash force his ex, TR, to kill her son, Bert, and then commit suicide. And if that plan fails, plan B is to make it appear as though T.R. had committed the murder of her son and then committed suicide. So here's my question. Is this the only insert in this journal? No, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's you several, know what I mean? It's like, several pages. Even, yeah. That but, even right there. How would an investigator look at that and be like, oh, look at this journal. It has everything written out for it right here. We're done. I mean, doesn't that seem just... On the front seat of Dustin's car. There's nothing from last Tuesday or last you know, last month or nothing. It's just literally on the case. Here's the answer. Here's what happened. Case closed. <laughs> that's just such, that's so lazy. I doesn't know. even make any sense. Uh, remember, Tracy is very manipulative. After getting Dustin to write in the notebook, Tracy proceeded to get Dustin into the master bedroom and shot him nine times. Then she started staging. She tossed the pink notebook into Dustin's car, coached Bert, her son, as to what to say, then marked herself with injuries. The neck injury in particular was interesting. First, it was concluded by a medical examiner that she wouldn't have blacked out. The injury was not in a place that would have caused this. The injury looked weird also. It looked more like a rug burn. It would have possibly been made by Tracy running the pantyhose back and forth along her neck. (laughs) Okay. 
Yes, Michael supported Tracy on the Montel Williams show, but their marriage was anything but stable. Remember, Tracy's violent temper? She showed this many times to Michael. In one of her arguments, she started kicking holes in the wall. It was around an outlet, and Michael was afraid she would get electrocuted, so he grabbed her, and according to him, he laid her on the floor. Now, you know, if he's pissed, maybe he didn't quite lay her on the floor, but... (laughs) He gave her a pillow as he gently (laughs) laid her down. And a little blankie and put her down. (laughs) She calmed down and then proceeded to call the police. Michael spent a few days in jail that time around for abuse. Michael also claimed that Tracy tried to kill him twice. A few days before one of the attempts, she took out life insurance policies on him and the children. His claims were dismissed. In April of 2004, Michael finally filed for divorce. Tracy, in response, filed for temporary child support as well as a protection order against Michael. She and the children moved to Omaha, Nebraska after the divorce claiming Michael was still harassing her and the children. So now Michael, who he was another man she married, absolutely loved his children, was no longer allowed to even see them Mm. and had to pay $1,247 in monthly child support. Yikes. Now he did go to court and try to change this to $840, claiming that the calculations of the court had been wrong. They had used earning capacity instead of actual income. Mm. And he could not afford the $1,247 a month. The court not only upheld the $1,247 a month, but also put the full amount of the court cost in Michael's lap. (laughs) Now, why couldn't he afford to do this? Oh, because Tracy had put things online about how Michael was a terrible business owner, he skimmed, he cheated people, he blah, blah, blah. They lost their company. So Michael has no income. And then she just moved away and said, see ya, but you have to give me money every month. Oh, yeah. In 2011, a 45-year-old Tracy Richter, she had changed her name to her maiden name, was arrested at an Omaha mall and charged with first-degree murder. She was extradited back to Iowa, for the trial. At the trial, Mary Higgins was one of the star witnesses with her account of Tracy's knowledge of the pink notebook and what was written inside of it. The only people who stood by Tracy's side were her son Bert and her mother Anne, who still do to this day. Bert totally, I mean, says even to this day, I was there. I was a witness to what happened. How old is he when it happened? 11. I saw these men attack my mom. I saw them strangle my mother. I saw them run after my mother when she went to the bedroom. You know, he, to this day, stands up for that. Wow. But Tracy was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which, of course, she appealed. But (laughs) that has been turned down. End of story? Oh, no. Michael, who lived in California, got custody of Noah and Mason. But after Tracy's arrest, Judge Nancy Wittenberg ordered visitation rights to Tracy. So does what? He flies the kids to Iowa So Noah and Mason must visit her in prison at least three times a year. It's a control factor still with this woman. I mean, I know she probably still wants to see her kids, though. I I get it. Does she have a right, though? She shot somebody in cold blood with her kids a few feet away. Anyway, 
Okay, moving on. John and the children's address must always be disclosed to Tracy so she can send the children mail and tapes of her reading stories to them. So that makes sense, right? Like you said, but not in this case. According to Michael, he has received death threats, mostly from her family. So to keep himself and his children safe, he moved to California and then moved to different locations in California to keep ahead of the threats. He and the children could not move to Australia, even though the kids mm. had dual citizenship. Yeah, and he really wanted to move back there. Because of the court ruling. A number of therapists and counselors even came forward stating this ruling does more harm to the children than good. Mm-hmm. But that didn't matter. So Michael and the children had to travel 1,500 miles from California to the women's prison in Mitchellville, Iowa, three times a year, even though the traumatized children did not want to see their mother. Oh, wait, there's more. Wittenberg also ruled that Michael still had to pay child support to the despicable Tracy. Wait, how, how is that even... She has no children in her custody. Why would she still get money? Well, remember, he couldn't is afford... Is spousal the... support or... Oh, it's nope. back payments? Yeah. But he has full custody now, so that doesn't even make any sense. He's supposed to pay 250 a month towards a balance of $45,000 in delinquent child support and $60,000 in property and attorney's fees. This whole thing makes absolutely no sense. Tracy, in turn, had to pay $20 a month to Michael for child support since he had custody of the children. In 2014, Judge Kirk Wilkie ruled that since Richter doesn't need the money in prison, the money owed will instead go towards the $150,000 restitution that Richter owes the family of victim Dustin Weedy. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. So instead of Tracy paying anything to the Weedy family. They're taking it from Michael and what he owes in back pay and court fees and paying towards that $250 a month. So Michael has to pay that to the, to Dustin's yeah. family. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. they're rightfully owed that, but that's just, I don't know why that would have to come from Michael. Exactly. I don't know. I, I don't understand all of that. No, this was stuff. I mean, it really feels like somebody needs to sit down and like adjust this entire case. <laughs> like it just it's is such a mess. Unbelievable. I, OK, so I apologize for my lack of specific information about Michael and the children after 2014. They laid low in California for years. Eventually, they did move back to Australia where Michael remarried. He and his wife have a daughter. There were other things that Michael had to endure. First of all, his visa was over and in fact had been, you know, his three month visa because he was from Australia. He wasn't mm-hmm. an American citizen. So he was ever fearful of being put in jail because of that. And in fact, I think they arrested him either for the support or the visa. They were going to arrest him three, three different times, which would have put his children in foster care. Yeah. But family rescued him with the amount that he owed. So I think it was the back pay. As I said, Bert and Tracy's mother, Anne, still support Tracy's story of two male intruders. Bert made a Facebook page called Free Tracy Richter. It was interesting to read the comments on the innocence of Tracy. Oh, that would be interesting. 
and how it was Michael Roberts and prosecutor Ben Smith that made up things to put Tracy in jail. That made things up. Yeah. So she's putting it on Michael. She's reversing things and saying it was Michael's idea. Michael is the one who started all this and he was out of town conveniently. So and then he's he has a close relationship with Ben Smith. And so the two of them came together and made all this up mm. through all of this up with as many stories as she wants in prison. Yeah. Sit there through all of this mess. Let's not forget the victim, Dustin Weedy and his family. Dustin walked into the home of a woman he thought was a friend, and he ended up being a pawn for a delusional, psychotic killer. Mm. Sounds like a mess to me, Mom. Yeah. I mean, it. okay, she was put in prison, end of story. But it wasn't the end. She continued to ruin lives from prison. Yeah, and try to keep control over things. Ugh. I don't know, this seems very manipulative to me. May I just say, controlling, conniving, B. <laughs> this story just made me so angry, so angry, that one person is capable of so much evil. Well, it's almost like she brainwashed herself even to believing all of this stuff. Oh, I'm sure. She's in that narcissistic yeah, thing. Yeah, totally you know, narcissistic. That yeah. all she has to do is say the story once, and it's the truth for her. Can you lighten it up? Because I'm still, like, really angry. <laughs> we'll see what I can do for you, Mom. I honestly wrote my notes a long time ago, so this is going to be really fun to read through these. Let's see. What am I covering? Oh, yeah, this is a good one. Okay, for the paranormal, are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Council Bluffs, Iowa, was having a lot of troubles with the law in the 1880s. 1880s. Lots of troubles, lots of problems. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I wrote this. I wrote these notes a long time ago. In an article I read, they called it a lawless place. But those that lived in Pottawatomie County didn't want to pay for they didn't want to pay for an expensive jail to put all these trouble causers, troublemakers away. But they needed to do something because they were having all these problems. So their solution was to build a human rotary or a lazy Susan. That would require one guard with a gun. <laughs> this is crazy. So let me try to explain this. They built a jail, but it's very small building. I mean, it's three stories. It's a decent sized building. But for everything that's housed inside of it, it's pretty small. Okay. So you walk into this entryway. And again, it's small. But imagine, okay, let's imagine you're a prisoner and you were arrested for, I don't know, jaywalking or being <laughs> intoxicated in public. I don't know. Yeah. Mom got arrested for being intoxicated in public. <laughs> so she comes into this small entryway area and they take her weapons, her belt, her shoelaces. But you can keep your matches and your cigarettes, of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's a necessity. Now, I shouldn't say they because it was just one jailer. Two later on, and I'll explain that, but there was mainly one jailer for the jail, and this could house like 90 people. Wow. So this jailer would then lead you to this large heavy door, you'd open it, and there in front of you would be this large cylinder prison. So it's so hard to explain, but imagine you're looking down on the building, and there's this circle, and then the cells are cut into like pie slices. Oh, okay. And then that circle spins it literally spins 
it literally spins, not fast. You're not on like some ride at Disney World, but it would rotate around because there's only one door. So if you're trying to get to cell A, you would have to rotate the prison around until you'd get to cell A and then you could open the door to put you in cell A. Oh my gosh. And then there's three stories of that. Oh, wow. Does that make sense? Uh Uh-huh. And these are small cells and they'd each have like a, a little table on the wall and then their bed and then in the back corner in the middle of the pies you'd have all the toilets (laughs) all the toilets in the middle of the pies where all the toilets would be in the back of each individual cell so you just have your own cell right it's just very small in your little pie slice the jailer would use like a hand crank and Uh. when the jail was first built there was a um the inside drum that spun around would rotate on a water wheel from the basement But that didn't work for very long. Um, The jailer then had to use a hand crank to slowly spin the cells around so that the cell he wanted would face the door. But it would take a good 8 to 12 minutes for the inner drum to do a full rotation. So when he was cranking this and it was turning, it was all the floors. It wasn't just a single floor. Yes, I believe so. Okay. Now, as kooky as this sounds, it was kind of a fantastic idea because you didn't have to hire a lot of guards. <laughs> yeah. Right? Fantastic in the way that they saved a lot of money in their town. But remember, this is 1880s, 1885 to be exact. When the jail was built and the gears to the spinning pie <laughs> kept getting jammed. Oh, no. And when it would get jammed, then those that were in the back, not near the door, like they were stuck there until it could become unjammed. So you couldn't get them food. You couldn't give them water. They're like stuck back there. Oh, no. Like, I guess one of the prisoners had a heart attack and it took a really long time for them to rotate the jail to get to him during his heart attack. So there was obviously flaws in this grand idea. Yeah, think. Hey, do you know how long prisoners were kept in these pie things? It would depend on what they were in there for. Okay. It's a county jail. Okay. So they're going to be in there for awaiting trial or for minor things, but I'll, I'll get there. Okay. Um, The drum weighed 45 tons and it was balanced on a three foot square base that wasn't the sturdiest. Um, and like I said, it'd get jammed and it would get stuck a lot. Now, this wasn't some new idea that was only just brought here. There were 18 rotating prisons in the United States built around this time. And the Squirrel Cage Jail, which is the jail I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. the jail in Council Bluffs, Iowa, was the biggest. It had three floors, where I think most of them either had one or two. And there's only three left standing today. Oh. And they're all museums. I honestly don't know why it was called the squirrel cage jail. Some resources said because it looked like a cage that would house small animals. And I mean this with full respect, but like don't all jail cells look like cages? (laughs) But I also read that the name was supposedly inspired by Council Bluff's large population of black squirrels. I don't know, (laughs) but they called it the squirrel cage jail. That's what it's called. In the article I read on RoadsideAmerica.com, it stated that, quote, prostitutes and chicken thieves were housed with rapists and killers. Gilbert Ranfelt was jailed for writing a $1.50 check that bounced. And Jake Bird, at the other extreme, axe murdered as many as 50 people. Unquote. Oh, my gosh. Now, Jake Bird, he was the reason that Zach and his crew of ghost adventures went to investigate the squirrel cage jail. For their series, Serial Killer Spirits, they covered the Squirrel Cage Jail and Jake Bird in Season 1, Episode 3, Axe Killer Jail. 
Jake Bird was arrested in 1929 for the attempted murder of a wife and husband. He went to Fort Madison prison for 30 years, but was let go on good behavior. He got out of prison and worked as a railroad worker, which meant he moved a lot around the country. He was eventually picked up in Washington state for the murder of a woman and her child. He was housed at the squirrel cage jail awaiting trial in which he was found guilty and was executed. While awaiting execution, he admitted to 46 axe murders. Mm. Now, why Zach was very obsessed with Bird's story was the Jake Bird hex, in which Jake Bird hexed everyone involved in his trial and said that they would all die before his execution. And actually, six individuals did die before his execution in 1949 when he was hung. Five died of heart attacks and one died of bronchitis. Oh. Zach also mentioned in their episode that the wife and husband that Bird had originally tried to kill when he went to Madis, Fort Madison prison, the husband ended up going crazy and tried to kill his wife and himself years later. The husband died and the wife survived. Oh, how awful. And they say that they were hexed by the Jake Bird hex as well. Okay, so here's the thing. You have people like Jake Bird in there as well as you. Remember, you were arrested for... Yeah, I'm drunk. Being, yeah, yeah drunk in public. Uh, there was also a juvenile center up on the second floor. I believe it was the second floor. And this was a little group of cells for youth aged 3 to 13. Three? Mm -hmm, for children that were arrested for underage drinking, runaways, or children whose parents were arrested and they needed a place to go while the state arranged something for them. Oh. But besides these kids, you have... Adults arrested, mostly for dumb stuff. So they go to county jail for that, of course. Adultery, fishing without a license, intoxication. Um, but there were bad guys there too, like I mentioned. Now, I say all this because later on in like 1960, the fire marshal made them stop the rotary aspect of the jail. They're like, this is, this is just, <laughs> this is just too much. Like, you're just spinning these poor people around. There were many reasons that they closed it down. I'm, they didn't close the jail down. They, they stopped the rotating of the jail. Um, the jail was still open. But there was many reasons that they stopped the rotating of the prison. I mean, if it got stuck, you'd have prisoners stuck in the cells in the back and no one could get to them. They could starve. If someone was injured, it took them a long time to get to them. And yes, limbs got stuck in the rotary Ew. jail, Ew. either by accident or on purpose. One prisoner tied a sheet to the jail and suffocated as the jail spun around. So when the fire marshal said, hey, no more spinning, they had to like cut holes within the cells. So then it's just like one big jail. And remember, there's one door to get there. So now <laughs> this is when two jailers came in handy because you'd have the jailer and then somebody with a gun that would come in with him. When he needed to go in and get a prisoner. Okay. But then at night, you have the person who was arrested for writing a check that bounced, as well as some guy who killed somebody awaiting trial, all sleeping in this open area. Oh, now it's open. Well, there's holes in each cell because they're not rotating it anymore and they have to be able to get to all the cells. So nowadays, if you go to the museum, because it's a museum, they've kind of put up false backs to make it look like it's still the rotating cell, but you can see that they cut it all so it's just all open now okay all of that being said though there was only four known deaths in the jail 
the man who did that with the sheet that I mentioned. Yeah. We don't need to discuss that again. Um, and then a prisoner that died of a heart attack. A prisoner that fell from the third story. He was trying to write his name on the ceiling. And then there was an officer that was shot in a tragic accident during training and a gun misfired. Mm. Okay, but let's back up. Back up to when the jail opened in 1885. Just some interesting facts I learned in the research. The clothes you come in jail in are the clothes you're stuck in jail in. So you would get a shower once a week and you would shower in your clothes. Oh, no. Yeah, they didn't have laundry. So you'd wash your body and your clothes in mostly cold showers and then you'd head back to your cell. With wet clothes on. Yeah. And then back then there was no heat either. You're in Iowa, so you have all four seasons. Back in that entryway, there was an itty-bitty kitchen with this itty-bitty stove, and they would heat coals on the stove and then take the buckets of coal to the cells to keep the prisoners warm in the winter. And like I said, this is a really little stove, and that's where all the cooking would be done, was just the stove. So the jailer either had to be married or had to have a sister because she needed to provide (laughs) the 60 to 90 meals a time at mealtime from this little stove. Holy smokes. Yeah. All she had was this little old school stove until 1920 when they finally gave her a sink and a summer kitchen outside. And yes, the jailer lived there in the jail with his wife and children. No. They lived upstairs in the three-bedroom apartment. They lived pretty, you know, like normally up there. They hosted card games. The children had sleepovers. They just had a jailhouse underneath them. (laughs) A human rotary underneath That's them. That's so weird. So they had a separate entrance. No, it's the same entrance and the entryway. And then there'd be one big solid door that would lead to the jail. But there's also a little staircase in that small entryway that would go up. Okay. Because okay. you have to think too, that one door leads to like right into the rotary area. Ah, uh, it would. Yeah. So you need one for the second story to go into the jail and then into the third story. And so there's... There's some area around the rotary. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Around the cylinder drum in the yeah. middle. Yeah. Because they had tables there. And it was really cool. I watched this YouTube video and she gave a tour and then he did a paranormal investigation there with his mom and dad. It was a really good tour that she gave. And there's like everything is still original. So they have this table there that has all of these things carved into it from back in the 20s if not earlier from prisoners and they have the cells still have all these things etched into them and it was just it was really fascinating to see wow uh the jail is now owned by ryan rowenfeld a past president of the historical society of potawatomi county he mentioned that the jail was the most frequently condemned building in council bluffs throughout (laughs) its history but remember the people barely wanted to pay for the jail in the first place. So right. they're not going to want to keep putting money into this right. thing. Like it was ch- cheaper to keep it as it was and fill in the holes and duct tape it and patch it up and keep it going. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and there were a lot of holes in the walls and tunnels to fill in. You know, there's one guard. So as he's upstairs in his apartment watching TV and trying to go to bed at night, there were prisoners, a few prisoners that would tunnel on out like they're. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Somehow. So he wasn't. He was on duty 24-7. Yeah, it was just one jailer there. Oh. And and they would have patrol. They would have officers come and I'm sure take shifts. But they just needed one person. They just need one guy there in the beginning before the 60s. Okay. This sounds horrific. But I mean, 
like I said, only four people died. This I know. Jail, but so think about that. This jail operated for, I think, like 86 years. Wow. And only four people died. One was a heart attack, which you can't do anything yeah. about. One was a suicide. One was a suicide. Think about that. Just one was a suicide. One was an accident with a gun. And mm-hmm. then one, he fell. That was an accident, too. Wow. So... But I'm still surprised even just that's amazing suicide. Like it's yeah, I think I thought so. I, don't, I mean, it's still four people. That's still terrible. But in 86 years in a jail that probably housed a lot of people, eight, 90 people at a time, sometimes that's a lot. And in the 60s, when they turned it from a rotary to a rec- like when they turned off the rotary, I don't know how to say that they took half of what they were allowed to take. OK, so I think maybe 30 were there at that time then. <sighs> But still, that's crazy. Yeah. In 1969, the whole jail was declared unfit for human habitation and was officially shut down. The building has been maintained and is open for tours and paranormal investigations. Ooh, ghosts. <laughs> but before I tell you about the ghosties there, I want to read to you the last paragraph in that article on RoadsideAmerica.com. Because although I said it was maintained for tours, you should be prepared if you go and visit. <laughs> it says, quote, Today, the Squirrel Cage Jail is open for tours, paranormal investigations, and overnight fundraiser lock-ins. Ryan is proud that it's as grungy and horrible as the day it closed, not cleaned up and sanitized like a smaller rotary jail in Indiana. Theirs is very sterile. Ours is much more interesting, he said. (laughs) I kind of loved that. Kind of loved that. It went on to say, the terror stink of cut-rate 19th century criminal justice still lingers in the squirrel cage jail. Quote, it's the kind of place where you've still got to watch your step. We've got people walk in here and get creeped so bad they turn around and walk right back out. Oh, probably the whole atmosphere is just so creepy. Okay, so ghosties. Let's start out that the jail itself was built on the site of an old church morgue. Where are we going to put this? Oh, okay. The one place. Well, I mean, again, they didn't even want to build it in the first place. So they're just oh. like, ugh, anywhere, wherever. <laughs> Jeez. And eerie paranormal experiences happened in the jail before it was shut down in 1969. A jailer in the 50s refused to sleep in the fourth floor apartment of the jail because he kept being woken up at night by footsteps on the floor of his apartment. Some say that the footsteps heard in that apartment are from the original tenant, the man who oversaw the building's construction, J.M. Carter. He may still be there watching over his building. And these aren't just like quiet little footsteps. Everybody that's reported footsteps reports it as being like stomping boots walking. Like it's not just, was that footsteps? Was that something else? Like it's like, duh, that was a footstep. Wow. Footsteps, whispers, and doors moving are all noises still heard today by the staff that work at the prison. And that's not all. Paranormal groups have gotten EVPs, shadow figures, voices, and sounds. A full-body apparition has been caught a few times up in the apartment. The apparition, so clear that people were certain it is Otto Gufath. Mm -hmm. Sorry, (laughs) don't know how to pronounce that. G-U-F-A-T-H, who is a former jailer. Although seeing a full-body apparition sounds scary, staff of the jail don't feel frightened up there on the fourth floor. They say the spirit up there is friendly, and they haven't had many accounts of negative spirit activity at all in the prison. Now, let me see if I can explain this. There's like, it used to be a small group of cells 
like up on I think it was the second story, maybe maybe the third small cells for women. It was like the women's cells. I guess they had more men and then women. I don't know. Anyway, it was a small cells groups for women. And the guy who didn't want to sleep up in the apartment because of the ghost waking him up cleaned out those cells because they weren't using them anymore. And he turned it into like a little studio area. And yeah. that's where he wanted to sleep. I think it was <laughs> on the second floor. And now they have it set up still like a studio kind of apartment. They have like a bed and like a closet and yeah. And then there's a picture, which I think is one of the originals from when he lived there. I think most of the things in there are. It's a portrait of a woman. And I guess there was like three guests that came through and were like, oh, she's really ugly. And like making fun of the woman in the photo and just kind of like, oh, my God, look at her kind of a thing. Oh no! And one of them was scratched. But that's Ooh. the only... I wouldn't want to be called ugly either, though. Well, they're being mean. They're being mean. Uh, So, yeah, that but that's like the on that was on the YouTube video I watched. Um, Let me get the name of that for everybody, because it was like I said, the tour on there was really cool. You get to see everything. So I I highly, highly recommend it. Oh, it's called A Scary Night Inside the Axe Murder Jail, the Squirrel Cage Jail. And it's done by the Paranormal Files. That's their channel is the paranormal files. And it was this younger guy with his mom and his dad. And then a tour guy literally takes them on a tour and he recorded the entire thing. So you, you, I honestly, I'm going to put a link to this on our okay. social media as well as our website because you get to see everything in this jail. It's it's really cool. It's totally worth watching. It's not the paranormal stuff. It's That's in a separate video on his channel. As soon as we stop recording, I'm going to Google. Yeah. And the paranormal stuff is on a separate video on their channel. So if you really just want to see this, the tour guide did an amazing job. It was really cool. Okay. So now I have to find my place in my notes. Give me a second. (laughs) Okay. So there have been reports of feeling sadness down in some of the cells. I mean, duh. (laughs) I can imagine. Orbs have been caught in photos. And I think the creepiest guests and staff have gotten a feeling of being tugged on like their clothes are just like, yeah when things get tight when you get touched i just that that ooh, ooh. and women have reported getting their thighs and their legs grabbed <laughs> <laughs> so in that youtube video i mentioned the uh, staff member that's giving the tour she stated that one night as she was closing up she heard what sounded like a door close up in one of the cells. She peeked her head in and she heard a woman say, hello. And she said it was so distinct and it was so clear that she thought someone was stuck oh in the jail from like a tour. They like, they went looking for somebody. They really thought that somebody was stuck from a tour or something. It was so clear. Wow. Children are heard and they believe that this is probably jailer's children probably that live there. So maybe like residual Um, whistling can be heard. Very distinct tunes of whistling. And during a storm, they overheard a conversation between a young child and an older man. Like he was trying to calm the child down during a storm. Oh, geez. And to end the paranormal, the jail is haunted by cats. (laughs) Uh, some people report what feels like a cat rubbing on their leg. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Cats meowing has been caught on EVPs or just like heard. Gross. 
And when you're sitting down, this is my favorite part, though. She says when people are sitting down, like doing an investigation, sometimes they get like a cold spot on their lap. (laughs) (laughs) It's the cat jumping on their lap. Yeah, like a cat had jumped on their lap or like is like curled up on their lap. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. She's laughing. Can you imagine? Be like, oh, my God, there's a cold spot on my lap. Oh, my gosh. Those oh, I'm so cats. getting online right away. I will send you the link. It was, it, I thought it was so cool. Quite the history. Wow. They even have like this noose there that was used. And she tells you the whole story on the YouTube thing, on the YouTube thing of these two guys that kind of went on like a three day shooting spree. And they were, uh, one of them was housed there, I believe. In another house somewhere else. Oh, shoot, I don't remember the story. But the, what, the noose used to kill one of them is there at the jail. Oh. And Zach was like all about it. Oh, wow. Because that's just creepy though. Isn't that creepy though? Like that noose killed somebody. Like that rope that's hanging there. You know you know what I mean? Like you I really know. think about it. It's just like. Aren't they used even to if you don't believe one, one person? I mean, that's just. Ugh. But even if you don't believe in like that it's haunted or anything like just the fact that that was used to kill somebody. I mean, just like if you saw a knife that was used to kill somebody, it's just weird to me. It is weird. It is really weird. Well, when I was on that, in that show, I found out that um, there are spirits there. At the theater you performed in? Yeah. And the one up in the costume room that does not surprise me. I have never, I've never experienced anything up there, but I'm always scared to death to go in there. You're gonna, you're gonna roll your face at me here, but do you remember when you used to work there and we would go like later at night and it would just be like you guys in the office or something, or I'd just swing by and say hi, or I'd bring mm-hmm. you something or whatnot. I've never gone in expecting to feel it. I've always felt something there. I've always felt something in that building. And I've always thought that's just so weird because it doesn't, it's not like some old creepy looking building. Like it's a, right. it's not some old theater or anything like that. Right. It's actually very modern looking on the outside. But I've always felt just some, something, something. And I've never even gone backstage or up in costumes or anything. There's just something. Like you're not alone. Yeah. In that room. Yeah. Well, the, the costume shop though, I mean, it's, there's no windows and you walk in and there's just clothes hanging everywhere and it's very tight. So that would cause a bit of trepidation anyway. But I've always felt like I wasn't alone up there. Always. And it's always kind of creeped me out. And then I heard that there's a spirit up there. I'm like, yeah, okay. But that's, and I'm sorry, but that's a theater. This was a jail. So that being said, mom, it's just you feel like somebody's there. It's just a gut feeling. What does your gut say? Would you ever visit the squirrel cage jail? <laughs> I think I think it would be like super interesting to see. Would I it mean, just, I I don't know about the haunting. You know, I wouldn't go there for that. I I think it is just such um, a strange thing. Uh, I would like to see it. Yeah, I know. I think I'd want to do a tour also, just to see it in person. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems really cool. Man, we have so many road trips planned. And, <sighs> and I keep getting <laughs> and, knocked up. Oh, my gosh. And going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> we keep going nowhere. <laughs> oh. 
We, but we will. We should. We should just do a summer trip and bounce around everywhere. I don't know how because it's like all <laughs> over. <laughs> Bye, Alex. Have fun with all four kids. I'll see you in three months. <laughs> Alex can take care of the boys. He's really good at it, but I'm not leaving yeah, my I dog. Guess. not for three months (laughs) oh gosh oh I couldn't leave the kids for three months that would be hard that would be really hard it'd be hard for them too they love their mommy (sighs) all righty well batch of Christmas cookies is calling my name all righty I'm sure they'll be delicious I'd like to wish our listeners a happy new year yes a happy new year all of our resources from this episode will be, and pictures from this episode, will be on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. If you want to join us on Patreon, please feel free to do so. <laughs> we'd love to have you. Only $5 a month. Hey. The link to our Patreon, as well as our website, and any of our social media sources is going to be in our show notes in the description of this episode. So join us. All right. Well. This is going to sound really cheesy, but you'll hear us in the new year. (laughs) (laughs) I hope they'll hear us in the new year. (laughs) Cheers, Mama. Cheers. I love you, kid.